Hey everybody, we realize there's a lot of extra crunch stuff on this week's shot, so if you need access, our code is still worth, I think, half off, just use equity. But back on Thursday, we will have our usual mix of TC and EC stuff. Okay, bye. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex and I have three things for you that are a treat today. One, we're talking SaaS. You're welcome. And two, of course, I have Danny and Natasha here. Natasha, how are you doing? How's your week going so far? I told my roommate that we're recording a show on SaaS and she was like, that's still what startup people are talking about. And I was like, this is our entire thesis for the episode will be why are people still talking about SaaS? No, but I'm actually happy to be here. It's going to be fun. (laughs) It is going to be fun. Danny, we're talking SaaS, my favorite thing. How excited are you on a scale of one to 10? I'm like a five. I'm neutral. I'm analytically neutral. I have pros and cons with SaaS. Good journalist. I'm not sadster. (laughs) I'm like hapster. SaaS, I I I don't know. But I, there's so much to talk about. But what I am so excited about is that we have three major topics on this show, three yes. theses that are yes. changing the SaaS world. I want to launch with the first one. And this is a piece I wrote last week because I got a sales pitch from the good people at Axios, which invented this concept of smart brevity, which is definitely not something we follow on equity at all times unless Grace cuts no. us off. <laughs> and so what's their Axios HQ software? It's basically internal communication software. It's 10000 a year, minimum price to help you write better emails internally to your company or potentially externally through marketing. Tighter headlines, better graphics, bold lines, bullet points, etc. I see Alex is raising his hand. I have a question for the class. Do you have to pay more for different subheads? Like is but, but, but an extra couple thousand dollars a year or like... The BFD. Yeah, the BFD. <laughs> Do you have to pay more for those? You pay more for those. The more butts you have, the more you pay. But that uh, might be called a usage model. Depends on the context. We'll get to that in a couple we'll of minutes. We'll get that, that no in a little bit. No SaaS jokes this early on <laughs> This is bad SaaS jokes. <laughs> okay. You Anyways, can't spell SaaS without ass, but you have to spell it wrongly. <laughs> Nonetheless, Axios is basically selling relatively expensive stuff. I mean, 10000 a year is not cheap, but relatively expensive software to help you do things that you should already do, to write things in a way that should be easily read by people. And there are a bunch of companies in this space. So I, I wrap this up into what I call best practices as a service, which is a theme that I've seen in a variety of different disciplines. So for instance, we've talked a lot about e-commerce. We had a special e-commerce equity episode. Companies like Shogun and others are doing best practices around storefronts, how exactly to put the buy button. In our case, where we didn't even have the buy button on TechCrunch for like three days on ExtraCrunch, we found out that no one buys things if you don't have a buy button. That's funny. Cybersecurity, we're seeing the same things with Qualsys and Security Scorecard, which is enforcing norms around security practices to ensure that you're always meeting the best practices. And then finally, we saw the same thing with Google AMP with web dev, you know, being able to have a low payload so your pages load super fast, people are more likely to click, etc. And so I'm seeing this in so many different categories where SaaS has added so much complexity to our lives, it's hard to do the right things, and oftentimes you need to enforce standards. And so what I'm seeing is this new wave of SaaS companies that are saying, look, there is a best practice, there's a best way to provide medical care, there's a best way to write, there's a best way to onboard people to your company. And we're not going to let you get away with it to do it worse than the best practice. It definitely feels like a symptom of startup craziness. Danny, you made this point in your piece. Inputting credit card details isn't a hard problem that requires brilliance. And I needed someone to say that out loud because in my head, I've been seeing all these startups 
amazing people are behind them, but I've just been like, wait, is this it? And I think that is a really important thing to realize is like simple innovation can also be the most important innovation that's happening. Delightful inputting of credit card details. Easy. That's like a billion dollar startup right now, but as crazy as it sounds, yeah, there are so many people who don't set up the form to put in a credit card number easily and lose sales because of it. Yeah. And that's sort of the argument for all these different pieces of software is that if you just were to follow best practices, look, if you started with a base of best practices, most companies would dramatically increase their performance. And so that's the argument for these SaaS companies, many of which have raised $100 million plus rounds, lots of stuff going on. And I actually expect this to massively increase because I think we talked about this a week or two ago, Okta put out a report about the number of SaaS applications on average by company. Alex, remind me, it was like 173 SaaS apps per company now? I think it was 175. That is two more than I thought. That's crazy. It's Before it was reasonable, but now it's like <laughs> even more absurd. And so when you have so many different apps, you know, you need that layer above you to say, how do you use these apps effectively? How do we make sure that we're offering the best customer experience, the best developer experience? That's where best practices as a service kicks in. Okay, so one quick question before we move on, Danny, because to me, you're talking about two different things. One is like implementation of best practices. Like, for example, RapidFast, Checkout.com, et cetera, are all building the best checkout. We talked about this. And then there's like the Okta problem, which I also have here at the lovely and excellent Verizon Media Group. When I load up Okta, there's this page of apps that I have access to. I don't ever look at it because there's like a bajillion of them. I don't know. I'm busy. I'm trying to go check my time off or whatever I'm trying to do, you know? And to me, they feel like different concepts. There's like the app frequency issue, that having too many things. And then there's the kind of best practice apps that bring to you this radically simplified version of a thing you have to do, and they make it good for you. Axios will help you write a better email because no one is good at emails, even though we all should be by now. And, you know, Rapid will make your checkout not suck, even though, as you said, since 1989, it's impossible. So to me, they feel almost a little distinct. Am I missing something? You know, there's this wave of new SaaS apps that came out 10 years ago, many of whom were just exploring the space. They didn't even know the best practices, right? What was the best practice for onboarding an employee 10 years ago? Well, Workday, when it got started, I want to say in 07, more than a decade ago, look at it today. I mean, it's not a best practice app. No offense to the nice Workday people, but like, I don't enjoy it at all as a manager. And now there's a bunch of tools that do it a lot better. So I think we've talked about the amount of investment in OKR software. Oh, yeah. How could it be possible that tens of millions of dollars can go into OKR software? Right. But it's possible because with the right best practices, people actually use the software. And because they actually use it, it drives engagement. And in fact, that is the next topic we're going to talk about using SaaS applications. Yeah, that's actually a perfect pivot. In order to make this happen, you need experts to do it. And I don't know why I'm taking on a sales pitch right now. <laughs> I just like have to get myself excited for SaaS. And I did so by reading this story. Wow. So, it feels like on a QVC wow, channel by topic. accident. <laughs> so the thesis that I'm going to talk about is the idea that the future of SaaS is going to be in hiring on-demand experts to make the customers of your SaaS tool become super users. So it goes along the theory that maybe 80% of your platform's features aren't being used to full potential. You only use the most basic layer. And so when a year comes and you have to renew your contract, you're like, eh, it's not that great. So the way that some SaaS startups can get around that is by, you know, having these really technical post-sales roles that really help you take the most advantage of your product. I think it's interesting. I have a bunch of friends in startups right now, and the post-sales role is being pitched as this alluring opportunity, which is exciting, but is also kind of just really 
What do you do? I would call this customer success success. Yes. Which is how do you create success and customer success, which sounds so obnoxiously dumb. But in reality, it's not enough to just buy software. I think best practices software is trying to solve one problem, which is like, hey, maybe literally your customers are dumb. Right. Like, don't give them any customization. Force them to do exactly what you want them to do. But most software can't literally force you in exactly these small grooves. And so you need these people who help you, guide you to using the software the best possible way. And if you do that, you're much more likely to use the software. You're not going to churn as much. It's going to be a lot better. This strikes me as kind of a hybrid of like customer success and just having people that do services at a SaaS company. Most SaaS companies have a software business and they have a services business. And, you know, they're very different. And the services people help you implement and get started and get going. I think the idea of having an on-demand pool of experts that are great at a thing is pretty cool, though. I just ran through my calendar trying to find this uh, meeting from last week. I can't find it. I was talking to a cybersecurity company, and they are doing a hybrid of kind of like standard cybersecurity software. And also they have a pool of experts that are kind of like independent cybersecurity folks who help do penetration testing on their clients. And so they have a human and computer component. And with the two combined, they can do so much. And so to me, this is like the SaaS version of that. And I think it's great. But in SaaS, we're now splitting so finely the different roles and nuances. I wonder if people listening to this are like, guys, we've already had that before. Are you just cutting the same hair into more pieces? That's so true. I mean, I have to be honest. When I was first thinking about this idea, I was like, okay, the idea of bringing a human into a software solution is not radical or innovative at all slash should not be exciting or newsworthy. But when you do think about our own personal experiences with certain tools, like, I mean, Airtable is technically low code, but like even I know I'm not fully taking advantage of Airtable. There are so many of those aha moments where I'm like, OK, I can see why some SaaS startups think that this is a competitive advantage to get me an Airtable, you know, hotline would be amazing. One of the things and we're going to move on to topic number three, it's actually around usage based models. One of the reasons Airtable doesn't have this infrastructure to teach you how to use it better is because it's a seat model. You get paid by seat. And there's no incentive if you're paid on a seat to actually get you to use the software regularly as part of your job, as long as you don't churn. In fact, if I can get you at precisely the point where you don't churn, but use the least number of services, that's like the optimal profitable moment to be in a company. But as we're going to talk about now, a ton of software as a service companies are moving towards a usage-based model where if I can quadruple or quintuple the amount of usage you get with the software, I actually make four or five X the amount of money. And that's much higher incentive. So Alex, tell us a little bit about that model. All right, we're going to talk about Microsoft. To start. Woo! Um, OG. So, old fact, I used to be a Microsoft beat reporter and I just covered Microsoft. That was it. That was the only thing that I did. And it was really great by the way to have one focus because that's all I did. It was just one company. Anyways, Microsoft a couple of years ago shook up their sales people's compensation. Before up to that time, if you sold Azure time, which is like you know, sold blocks of compute time on their public cloud, you got commission. Then no one used it. And so they flipped it around and said, now you'll only get comped if people that you sell it to actually use the Azure you sell them. Because they were just baking it into other contracts and then getting extra bonuses for it. And Microsoft realized that usage-based incentives were going to be much better for their sales team. And Azure's done very well since then. So the idea here is relatively similar. What if you get people to actually use your product as opposed to just keep giving you money for it? This, to me, is a better alignment of incentives. And the reason why I wanted to bring up this particular story in our SaaS, SaaS, SaaS episode, whatever this is, is because a lot of startups these days that I'm talking to are increasingly going API first, as opposed to making kind of like traditional enterprise software. And what they do is they offer some simplification of a problem via an API, and they generally charge for usage of it. And to me, this is great because I only give you money when I need it. 
And so you want me to need a lot, which means it's going to be really, really good. So here's my question. So you list a bunch of companies in our little doc here. Okay, Twilio, I think is like an 07 or 09 company. Datadog is a 2011 company. Snowflake's like, I think, 2013, 14. Stripe's 09. This has been going on for like 10 years. Is there anything really new with user-based models here? To me, the concept is not new because as we learned in the Old Testament, there's nothing new under the sun, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> But it's, uh, it's, and one, I didn't write this. I'm just riffing on this idea that, that was on the site. Don't, don't, don't pin this donkey tail on me, sir. Uh, but what I like about it is it highlights, I think, a sentiment shift amongst startups that they don't have to just build enterprise SaaS software. They're going to try to sell on annual contracts and then force through 10 to 15% price increases every year. They can really focus on what people actually need. And software went from being a thing you had to like install on a huge box. Then it was a thing you bought for an individual computer. Then it became something you could use on the web. Then you paid for it as a subscription on the web. And now you're going to be able to use it like a metered service. And I think that's where software is going. So to me, this is a underlining of a trend in software and startups that really does matter, even though, yes, Stripe isn't new. That doesn't mean that it's not an important moment today for the startup world, sir. Natasha, you have here that um, it's actually performing pretty well among investors. Usage-based companies are trading at a 50% revenue multiple over their peers. And yeah, I mean, I think it's great for the end user, to your point, Alex. It just helps incentives kind of follow the money, which is always great when it yeah. benefits a single user. And some other big numbers over the IPOs of the last three years, seven of the nine that had the best net dollar retention all have usage-based models. Yep. And Snowflake in particular has 158% net dollar retention. In okay, case you so needed more reasons to understand that Snowflake's doing well. I'll go to Danny in just a second, but I have beef with the Snowflake thing. It, it's like it's like pulling the edge case and like, well, Snowflake's doing it. Of course, who gives a shit? Snowflake's so different from your company. It's It's like Lewis Hamilton never crashes. Well, fine, but you will, Danny. Look, I think it sounds great. So NDRR numbers are great. The startups are doing well. Seven of nine, not the Borg from Star Trek Voyager, but uh, seven of the nine companies are valued among the best. But to me, like the big question is, you know, isn't that an opportunity for other startups to go back to SaaS modeling? Like we're seeing this with companies in the payment space, right? Stripe comes in with usage and you use it a lot and you're like, wow, it's hundreds of millions of dollars now because we have a trillion dollars flowing through this thing. Shouldn't I find a payment facilitation SaaS company that charges me a SaaS fee? And then so I don't pay usage and I save a bunch of money. So I, I think that this cycle, now that we're going the other direction, the pendulum will swing back as people go, well, I don't want to spend $50 million on Snowflake and I'd like to spend $1 million flat and I want infinite mm. usage at that price. And so I expect the usage to go back the other way. One, Danny is subtweeting Phoenix, the uh, Sequoia-backed payment formerly, startup that we talked about. Sequoia-backed. Sequoia's <laughs> money went in. They just took, they just scraped the label <laughs> off of it. It's still, it's still Sequoia from Sequoia. Sequoia donated like $15 million to because yeah, Stripe wrong. called yeah. them and shouted, apparently. I don't know. All of tech is bundling and unbundling. And a good example of this is Box. Box just bought as e-signature service the other day. They're kind of boosting the power of the Box bundle around this content nexus. Dropbox did the same thing. Eventually, someone will come out with a pure storage company again, and it'll probably do well because it won't be bloated and expensive. I mean, time is a flat circle. SaaS is neat, but it's changing. And this is a look into the future. Best practice as a service, kind of SaaS being on demand with the human element, and of course, on demand pricing as well. So keep your eyes on the SaaS future. Equity is back in a couple of days. Hang tight. Bye. <laughs>